We return this morning to Matthew chapter 26, pick up where we left off last time at verse 47. This is at page 833, 833 in your pew Bibles, if that's helpful for you. We uh, come this morning to the last turn in Jesus' life before his death on the cross. Thus far, Jesus has walked freely among the people, teaching and healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God at hand. Now events are going to take a very sharp turn with Jesus placed under arrest. Last week we left Jesus in the garden. It was a place familiar to the disciples. They loved to be with their master there. Just 11 of them now remaining after Judas's having departed from them in order to keep his diabolical plans and promise to betray Jesus into the hands of of wicked men. Jesus, already sensing the approaching wrath of God against sin falling upon him, has prayed for that cup to be removed. Remember how with face in the dirt, prostrate, he begged, pleaded that this cup might pass from him. The Father's answer to his prayer was a clear no. So that matter settled. Jesus will proceed straight ahead toward doing the will of the Father on the Father's schedule. So the last words we heard from Jesus last week, spoken to his disciples, were these, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, as we pick up the dialogue now, <coughs> We pray for much grace to continue to receive what your word has to say <coughs> in the inmost parts of our hearts. We have, uh, we're stepping into from the portico of uh, Jesus' suffering right into the temple proper. So we pray that you will give us a due measure of your spirit to understand and to grasp, to appreciate and to adore for all that has been accomplished for us, that we may have eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi! And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? He will at once send more, me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, 
Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The authenticity of the gospel accounts of this history is made plain by their artless recollection of the history. You know, Jesus leaves the upper room, and Jesus and his disciples, they make their way in a journey about a mile or so, first northwards and then east, under the looming shadow of the temple. The streets are probably busy. Jerusalem is full of people to celebrate the season, and as they walk along, they can see through the lighted windows groups of Jewish pilgrims celebrating the feast, just as they had done themselves. The air, thick and stale in Jerusalem, gives way to fresh breath as they first descend into the Kidron Valley, also called the Brook Kidron, dry now, but in the rainy season, full of rushing flood water. And then rising slightly, the Lord and His band begin to ascend the Mount of Olives. A short, familiar climb in the light of the moon brings them to the place they had known so many times with their teachers before, with their teacher before in the garden. It's supposed that Jesus had a wealthy benefactor who allowed him to go into that garden with his disciples as he pleased. A garden, by the way, well known to Judas as well as the other disciples. Matthew has given us uh, some of the details of the garden episode, details filled out by the other Gospels, too. Uh, We get the larger picture when we combine them. Jesus' renewed sense of the heaviness of what is about to come, his command to the disciples to pray, his lonely night vigil, agonizing to the point of sweating blood, his prayer, Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. And the slumbering disciples. But commotion breaks the silence of the night. A great crowd, Matthew calls it, with swords and clubs comes audibly and visibly to the garden with Judas. Whose feet are trampling there? Whose the sound of marching. When we look at the other Gospels, we learn that these are a mixture of Roman soldiers and temple police approaching, also with torches in hand. Likely a crowd of hundreds, perhaps, and probably around a thousand. Around a thousand troops and police have arrived on the scene for one man. Roman troops, though usually garrisoned at Caesarea on the coast, were at hand for the feast to maintain order, to quell any insurrection which might begin during this religious fervor of this central Jewish holiday. Their very presence reveals that Jesus is no small concern for the leaders, Jewish and Roman. And apparently they expect that that he will be a force to be reckon with, and probably based on past experience. 
And what is more, the taking captive of such a popular figure as Jesus had become in Jerusalem might well have the effect of rioting and chaos in the streets. This goes a long way toward explaining explaining why they do this under the cover of darkness. On coming to Jesus, there is not the resistance they apparently anticipated, although none of them could possibly have expected that the mere words coming off of his lips would send them literally rocking back on their heels, reeling to the ground, as you might remember from John's account of the same history. But Jesus does not put up any resistance. And even when one of his disciples does, John tells us that that disciple was Peter, Jesus himself puts down the would-be insurrectionist and and heals the man from whose head Peter had so clumsily, albeit bravely, separated his ear. Now, as we contemplate our Lord here, standing just outside the gate of the garden, the soldiers before him, the disciples behind, what is it about this picture that ought to find its place indelibly in our minds and in our hearts, in our understanding of our Lord and of the salvation which He was through these events purchasing for you and for me. Well, two things, at least. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Jesus the King and Jesus the Lamb. First, consider Jesus the King. Remember that Matthew's been going to great lengths all through this, his gospel, to place Jesus before our view, in, particularly in his office of King. Even from the very beginning of the gospel, with his royal genealogy, you remember. From the very start, Matthew's point has been, Jesus is King. Jesus is king here in the sense that he is in absolute control, isn't he? He's he's ruling over all of this, every single aspect of this whole episode. You know, if you've ever witnessed an arrest, you know that the person being arrested is not in control. Even a wild man surrounded by ten policemen is not in control, not really of the situation. Now, he may think he's in control in his delusion, but he is not. And soon the subject of an arrest finds that out to his chagrin as the handcuffs are slapped on his wrists and he's placed in the backseat of a squad car. He is the last one whom any of us would say looking at him in the back of that squad car, the last one, we'd say, is in control of the situation. And even great kings, you know, throughout history, who thought they were in charge of the matters of their palace, found out different when, during an insurrection, the very soldiers they once commanded turned around to arrest and carry him away and maybe even kill him. But though this is indeed the account of his arrest, no one on that scene is more in control of these events than the very one who's being arrested. 
Jesus. In fact, the very one who has orchestrated these events to begin with is Jesus himself. Look at the details with me and see if it isn't so. First, consider that it was he who led his disciples to this garden to begin with. To the Mount of Olives. And think about this for a minute. Earlier that evening, Jesus had sent Judas out on his devilish errand. And now, where does Jesus go but to the very place where he knows his betrayer would most certainly come to find him? Jesus goes to the garden. You know, Jesus is, is, is as much as saying here, Here I am! To his turncoat disciple and the venomous assemblage. He has made it easy for them. He has set the time also at night and the location away from the crowd who so easily could have been stirred into a mob. And he has provided to his betrayer the ideal venue in which to get close enough to him to indicate his identity with a bitter, betraying kiss. Jesus is king, isn't he? He's king of all the universe, and the king himself has laid out the board here. You know, he set up the play, so to speak, for his own arrest down to the smallest detail. Or, or consider, second, Jesus' determination to see that all this take place. Remember, it was he who issued the marching orders to his disciples at the end of our passage last week. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And sure enough, while Jesus is still speaking of the devil, here he comes. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. You see, knowing what was happening, realizing full well what was taking place, Jesus does not run to the back of the garden. He, he doesn't try to jump the fence and run further up the mount. He doesn't send his disciples out first to meet them and ask what it is they want. No, he goes out. He leads his disciples out of the garden. I mean, Jesus, Judas and the soldiers, they don't even have to enter the garden, do they? They come, they come with torches. As I say, we know more than Matthew tells us. We learn about the torches elsewhere. We know that they not only come with weapons, they come with torches. Why? Why the torches? It's full moon. <laughs> they can see perfectly where they're going. They came with torches expecting to have to turn over every leaf in that grove to find him. They came with weapons, I guess expecting some battles to, to, to begin with him. But no, let us be going. Jesus says, my betrayer is at hand. King Jesus is in charge even of his own betrayal. A third mark of Jesus' kingly control over these events is seen in the dialogue. In fact, all through the dialogue. 
Not only is it Jesus who calls his disciples to rise and follow to his arrest, it is Jesus who orders the arrest. Did you notice that? He orders the arrest. After Jesus, Judas kisses Jesus and with ultimate affectation says, Greetings, Rabbi! Jesus orders the command. Do what you came to do. He even finds space in his response for some irony, some sarcasm, doesn't he? Friend, he calls him, calls Judas, do what you came to do. Jesus is fully in charge here. What is more, fourth, they essentially take orders from him. Continuing in verse 50, that's exactly what they do. Nobody says, hey, you, we'll give the orders around here. Nobody says that. Jesus commands, and they obey. Makes you wonder if maybe some of these temple police might not be the same ones who tried to arrest Jesus before. Don't you wonder about that? The exact people who were there to do this. You remember their attempt before. Some of these men here might be the very ones who had been sent on this errand before to arrest Jesus, but who returned empty-handed, who when asked where their captor was, replied simply, no one ever spoke like this man does. Jesus had escaped arrest before, hadn't he? Even walked right between those who would have taken him captive. So only because Jesus, with sovereign, kingly power, orders this sacrifice of himself that now that he's setting he's now setting up are they able to arrest him and take him into custody only because Jesus is in charge here because Christ is king and he remains king and he is never not the king he it is who's ordering all of these events to his perfect will and then fifth notice the royal resolve Peter lashes out with his clumsy sword. Apparently he's better at fishing than at fencing. And somehow manages to lop off an ear off of the high priest's slave. And Jesus, with regal command, orders his soldier, put your sword back in its place. Is that not Jesus acting as king. Now, he's not a pacifist. Jesus is not a pacifist. And in other contexts, we've talked about and we've studied the biblical doctrine of just war and the right time for Christians to take up arms. But Jesus' kingdom is not advanced with swords. It's not advanced with guns because Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth. Our weapons are not those of flesh and blood, but of the Word and of the Spirit. Remember how Paul puts it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he wrote to the Ephesians. Indeed, Jesus says, look, if... If I desired it, all I would have to do is say the word 
and 12 legions of angels would appear. What's a legion? Somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 in a legion multiplied by 12. That's how many angels would appear with a simple request of the Father. Now that's a king, isn't it? That's the king who can summon a vast army of angels in an instant. Finally, six, notice that Jesus is deliberately fulfilling Scripture here. As if he's now directing this drama, every line of it according to a pre-written script from hundreds, yea, thousands of years before, he says not once but twice, first in the form of a question, then in the form of a statement, all of this must and is unfolding according to Scripture. The book doesn't record this per se, but the public television drama version of Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, captures, we watched this with the children when they were little. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to, to catch it, the old non-technical drama version. I say that the drama ca captures the great Christ figure, the great majestic Lion, Aslan, as he walks away from Lucy and Susan, that fateful moment, and makes his way to the stone table on which he will be humiliated and killed. As the lion, maybe if you've seen this, uh, you remember the scene, as the lion is making his way along, he's surrounded by evil spirits and goblins flying all about. All the powers of hell are gathered there and flying about him. But what is remarkable about the way they portray the scene is they can't touch him. They're flying all about, but they can't touch him. He marches with kingly resolve in each regal, lionly stride to the place of sacrifice. All the while, Though the minions of darkness howl all about him, he is clearly in charge and in control, even over them. And that's how our Lord went to the cross, you see. From the very beginning of his redemptive errand, yes, but especially now with all of the resolve of one who is in absolute sovereign control of every step along that path from the garden to Annas' door to Caiaphas' house and eventually to Golgotha Hill saying, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's all the unfolding. Of that truth, Jesus had told the Pharisees many days before, no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus is king. And hardly any other event 
in this Gospel of Matthew demonstrates that fact more clearly, if with deep irony, than his very arrest. But that fact of his kingship here serves to put the other side of the story in even bolder relief. Jesus is king, yes, it is clear, but he is also second, he is the lamb. The lion of Judah is the lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 7, 700 years before its birth, spoke of Jesus thus, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There are three ways in which Jesus fulfills the role of a lamb here in this text. First, he's a submissive lamb. You see, there is, there is there's no fight here, is there? There's no struggle. They've come with clubs. Well, you come to get a, a robber, he says. They came like robbers, didn't they? <laughs> look at them. They look like a bunch of robbers with their clubs and their weapons and all. What would you do? You came to take a robber? There's no struggle here. Now, there is, as I alluded to a moment ago, that power that emanates from his single word. Remember, over in John's gospel, knocks the soldiers right over. But he puts up no resistance. He accepts. He embraces his arrest puts up no resistance. He embraces the arrest, the trial, even his death in willing submission. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? He says to Peter in another account. He had just prayed with sweat like great drops of blood that it would be removed from him. But it being his Father's will that he take it and drink this cup, he makes his Father's will his own. Willingly. They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away. A murderer they save. The prince of life they slay. Yet willing he to suffering goes that he his foes from thence might free. Jesus is a submissive lamb who offers up his life in obedience to his father, not as a pathetic martyr who's thrown about hopelessly and helplessly by the ill winds of cruel fate. No, in full knowledge of what is to befall him, Jesus goes. And not only is he a submissive lamb, but he's second the substitutionary lamb. He is the substitute. Look at what happens in verse 56. All the disciples leave him. All of them. To the man they flee, they disappear. He's left all and utterly alone to face this death that they might live. It is a, a physical picture right here. In the garden, they're just outside of it, of his substitutionary atonement, of his taking our place, our substitute, to make atonement, to make us one with the Father again, that we may have eternal life through his sovereign sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb who suffered the wrath of the Jews and the Romans in their place 
to be sure, but more, infinitely more, he suffered the wrath of God poured out upon him in your place and in mine, so that not a one of us whom the Father gave to him would he lose. That's what Jesus means when he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What, what cup? What is this cup? And you know the answer. You've read it in, in your scriptures, in your Bibles. What is that cup? It is the cup of wrath in full strength against us that we should have drunk. God's wrath and fury against every one of his people which should which we should have suffered, but which Jesus would drink and drink to the very last drop in your place, in mine. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned, he stood. And he stood there in your place willingly and took upon his own royal kingly person all of the wrath of God poured out on him. The lamb led silently to the slaughter. The lamb who was king and the king who became a lamb. That's the portrait of sovereign sacrifice here at the garden as they laid hands on Jesus and took him away. And if you, if I would ever grasp, begin to grasp what a sacrifice has been made on our part by our King of Kings, who is the Lamb of God's lane, we're going to need to stand there just outside that garden and ponder that, that strange mercy by which God himself here takes the cup in hand and prepares to drink it to its dregs until the moment comes when I thirst gives way to it is finished. <laughs>